Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Have LDS Apostles Seen Jesus? In the LDS Church, there is a large contingent of membership who have a strong conviction that LDS Apostles have in fact seen Jesus Christ. If you asked me that question 30 years ago, have LDS Apostles seen Jesus, I would have given you an unqualified yes. And I don't think that I am alone in this belief. Since that time, however, my feelings on the subject have changed to where not only am I not so sure that LDS apostles have seen Jesus, I am pretty sure that they have not. It is a strange phenomenon in the church that so many members believe that LDS apostles have seen Jesus when in fact none of them have claimed to see Jesus. The LDS church is known for having members who believe whatever the leaders say simply because the leaders say it. That's why there are sayings in the church such as when the leaders speak, the thinking has been done, and also when the leaders speak, the debate is over. And you can have your own issues with that kind of situation. Blind obedience to what a leader says simply because a leader says it. This, however, is one step further. This is a situation where it's not members believing what leaders say simply because they say it. It's what members believe in spite of the fact that their leaders don't say it. I mean, it is one thing to believe something just because a leader says it is true. It is another thing entirely to believe something in spite of the fact that leaders don't say it. This episode is going to explore this question as to why this phenomenon exists in the church today, and I've done a good deal of research and collected a number of data points which may help us to understand why this situation exists. We start off with the fact that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does have 12 apostles, actually 15 when you count the three apostles in the first presidency, but there is a quorum of 12 apostles in the church. When a church claims to have apostles, that comes along with a lot of baggage from the New Testament, which may be why not many churches claim to have apostles. We know that in the New Testament, Jesus chose 12 apostles who followed him and were part of his ministry. And then after Judas fell and after Jesus was crucified, the very first act of the apostles in Acts chapter 1 was to gather together and choose a new apostle to take the place of Judas. In Acts chapter 1 verses 21 through 26, it also gives the qualifications of the new apostle and the background that he had to have. And here's the verse. I'll read it quickly. Wherefore, of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So those are the qualifications for an apostle. They had to be with Jesus during his ministry from the beginning at the baptism of John all the way up to the point of his ascension when he was taken up from us in order to be a new apostle. Now, it's pretty obvious that after a few decades, you wouldn't be able to find anybody who could fit those qualifications, and certainly not today, but nevertheless, it sticks. One of the qualifications of an apostle is someone who has actually seen Jesus Christ. And even though this verse doesn't technically say that that's always going to be a qualification, and in fact, it would be difficult for it to always be a qualification as time went on, this has remained in the public thought one of the qualifications for an apostle, and it certainly has within the LDS Church. The LDS view of 
apostles is a person who is called into the quorum of the twelve apostles and set apart to be an apostle. So when we read in the New Testament about Paul being an apostle, it is very common for Mormons to conceive in their minds an extra-biblical scenario where Paul is called by Peter, brought into the apostles, his hands are laid on his head, he is set apart as a member of the quorum of the twelve. But that is something that is nowhere found in the Bible. In fact, what Paul seems to say is something very different, that his calling came from outside the structure of the church. His calling came from the personal vision that he saw of Jesus Christ when he was on the road to Damascus. And Paul says that it was three years after his vision before he went up to see the apostles. So Paul seems to be outside of this idea, this LDS idea of how apostles are called. The word apostle simply means one who was sent forth. And with that definition, Paul definitely qualifies. But as I say, Mormons put an extra biblical definition on top of it, which is that they have to be called from within the Quorum of the Twelve, just like it says in Acts chapter 1. Even though it is clear that Paul could not qualify under the definition in Acts chapter 1, because as far as we know, he never even saw Jesus when Jesus was in mortality, much less being with him from his baptism and witnessing his ascension. He's outside that definition already. So let's take it up to 1835. The church was organized in 1835. Five years later, Joseph Smith, through Revelation, has 12 apostles called, and that body is added to the church. Joseph Smith does not call the 12 apostles. Instead, he has the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon call the 12 apostles. And after the 12 apostles are called and set apart in this dispensation, Oliver Cowdery gives them a charge, the charge of the apostles. It is what their responsibilities are, what their obligations are, what their duties are. And as part of that charge to the apostles, Oliver Cowdery said, quote, It is necessary that you receive a testimony from heaven for yourselves so that you can bear testimony to the truth of the Book of Mormon and that you have seen the face of God, unquote. That is a heavy, heavy charge to the apostles, but something that Oliver Cowdery told them was their obligation and something that they took very seriously, even though it seems that none of them ever actually fulfilled the part about being able to see the face of God. Oliver Cowdery continues, quote, that is more than the testimony of an angel. In other words, seeing the face of God is more than the testimony of an angel. That is more than the testimony of an angel. Never cease striving until you have seen God face to face. Unquote. We can see from that that it was not necessary for a person to have seen Jesus in order to become an apostle, but once an apostle, it was their lifelong obligation to continue striving until they had seen God face to face. This appears to be tied up with section 107, which describes apostles as special witnesses of the name of Jesus. They have a special witness that they bear when they testify of Jesus Christ. And commonly in the church, we understand that to mean that what they are saying, no matter what words they use, the meaning behind it is that they have seen Jesus face to face. It appears that this apostolic charge given to the apostles when they're called to the Quorum of the Twelve changed right around 1900. Here I'm going from the research of historian D. Michael Quinn, who does know a thing or two about Mormonism. Therefore, the 20th century leaders of the church began publicly downplaying the necessity of apostolic visions. By the time he became church president, Heber J. Grant had overcome guilt he had felt as an apostle for not having 
had a vision. Quote, I never prayed to see the Savior. He told a tabernacle meeting in 1942. I have seen so many men fall because of some great manifestations to them. Unquote. Now that's very interesting because this is similar to what Brigham Young said in the latter part of the 19th century that he has never seen God. He has never seen an angel. And actually he's grateful that he's never seen an angel because everybody he knows who's seen an angel has fallen away from the church. Here we begin to see things being turned around from the apostolic charge of Oliver Cowdery, where he says you're supposed to strive until you see God face to face. And now the language begins being turned around to where seeing God face to face is actually not something to be strived for. And even more than that, seeing God face to face would be a detriment. It would be a negative thing because so many people fall away after they have seen God face to face. Heber J. Grant goes on and he says that not only has he not seen God or Jesus, but he doesn't know anybody else who has. And as president of the church, he would think that he would know pretty much anybody who would have. Here's what he said, quote, I know of no instance where the Lord has appeared to an individual since his appearance to the prophet Joseph Smith, end quote. That is remarkable in a church that believes that its apostles do see Jesus Christ and that when they bear their special witness that they are saying that they have seen Jesus Christ. What Heber J. Grant says in the 1940s is he is aware of nobody who has seen Jesus since Joseph Smith. And there is little reason in the historical record to believe that things have changed in that regard since the 1940s. So Heber J. Grant makes this statement about knowing of nobody else who's seen Jesus since Joseph Smith in the 1940s and the next decade in the 1950s, Joseph Fielding Smith, the apostle who was famous for having the most knowledge of the scriptures and being the church's premier theologian, begins teaching that it is actually not that great a thing to see Jesus or to see God and that the witness of the Holy Ghost is stronger. This is from Doctrine of Salvations, Volume 3, page 153, Joseph Fielding Smith, quote, every member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles should have, and I feel sure have had, the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This does not have to come by direct visitation of the Savior, but it does come from the testimony of the Holy Ghost. The testimony of the Holy Ghost is the strongest testimony that can be given. It is better than a personal visit, unquote. I remember the first time I ever heard that teaching, which was some time ago, and I thought, that's counterintuitive. That doesn't really make sense. How can you say that a witness of the Holy Ghost, a feeling from a spirit, is stronger than actually seeing with your own eyes and feeling the prints of the nails in the hands and in the feet? Not only is it counterintuitive in that it doesn't make sense, but it seems to be out of harmony with every scriptural account of Jesus appearing to people, such as the Nephites and 3rd Nephi, where time is taken for every single Nephite to come forward and feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. That is a much more sure witness than simply a feeling. But it seems clear to me, and I believe it likely, that Joseph Fielding Smith is now creating this teaching in order to provide a rationale as to why it is that the leaders of the church have not seen Jesus. Because the testimony of the Holy Ghost is the strongest testimony that can be given, that's quoting him again, and it is better than a personal visit. Gordon B. Hinckley, when he was a counselor in the First Presidency back in 1984, gave a general conference sermon titled, Special Witnesses for Christ. He's talking about the apostles and how they are special witnesses for Christ. He said that each apostle, quote, knows that Jesus is the Christ, the Redeemer, and the Savior of mankind. They know these great salient truths because of the power of the Holy Ghost, which bears individual witness to them. So, when we quote these sayings from Joseph Fielding Smith and Gordon Hinckley in 1984, 
therefore, it sounds very clear that when apostles bear witness, what they're saying is they have had a witness of the Holy Ghost. They're not saying they've seen Jesus. So why is it that today so many people still believe in the LDS Church that the apostles have seen Jesus? Well, the reason why is because there are mixed messages given. I want to go back to this idea of the apostolic charge for a second because that apostolic charge has changed since it was originally given in 1835 by Oliver Cowdery. It does appear to continue to be in effect that when a new apostle is called into the Quorum of the Twelve, they are given a charge, but the nature of that charge has changed. When Hubie Brown was called into the Twelve Apostles, he talks about the apostolic charge that he received. And this is found in his book, An Abundant Life, page 126 through 127. This is what Hugh B. Brown says about his calling. Later, the president gave me what is known as the charge to the apostles. That charge included a commitment to give all that one has, both as the time and means, to the building of the kingdom of God, to keep himself pure and unspotted from the sins of the world, to be obedient to the authorities of the church, and to exercise the freedom to speak his mind. But always be willing to subjugate his own thoughts and accept the majority opinion, not only to vote for it, but to act as though it were his own original opinion, after it has been approved by the majority of the Council of the Twelve and the First Presidency, unquote. So the first thing we note is that there's nothing in there about seeing Jesus or striving to see Jesus. That part has been completely eliminated. And as D. Michael Quinn said, it was probably eliminated around the year 1900. Something else interesting about this is the note that apostles are supposed to vote with the majority of apostles. So if you've got some issue and there are seven apostles who are of one mind, it is now the duty of the other apostles in the minority to vote with the majority. This is what it says again. Always be willing to subjugate his own thoughts and accept the majority opinion. Not only to vote for it, but to act as though it were his own original opinion after it has been approved by the majority of the Council of the Twelve and the First Presidency. Unquote. This brings to mind President Eyring's recent statement that when unanimity has been achieved amongst the Quorum of the Twelve, and the First Presidency, that is what constitutes revelation. President Iring described this process of arriving at revelation through council debate in an unscripted comment he made during a press conference in October of 2007. In relating his first experience attending a high-level church council with the First Presidency and apostles present, Henry B. Iring tells of his initial expectation that all present would receive revelation and be on the same page regarding the issue under consideration. He was surprised to find out this was not the case, but that those present held very different ideas and had no reluctance in voicing dissenting opinions. Here are prophets of God, and they are disagreeing, he said. As the discussion cycled around, however, the leaders eventually began to line up in their opinions. This does not seem remarkable given the strictly hierarchical nature of church leadership, where apostles enter and leave rooms in order of their seniority, yet President Eyring considers the somewhat mundane process of achieving consensus a miracle. In his off-the-cuff remarks, President Eyring pulls back the curtain and reveals the actual methods of arriving at decisions in top-level LDS church councils. In so doing, he fundamentally shifts the definition of revelation within the Mormon paradigm. No longer is revelation direct communication from God to the prophet and president of the church. Rather, revelation is arrived at through council consensus after debating different positions. And now that we know that the current charge to the apostles when they come into the quorum is to submit their vote to the majority, Majority, this unmiraculous method of arriving at revelation 
seems less and less miraculous indeed. Elder Christofferson has been saying a similar thing recently, that when the Twelve speak on any issue with unanimity, that is what establishes the doctrine of the church. Not what some apostle says out here or some other apostle says over here, but when they all speak with unanimity on a given subject, that is what constitutes the doctrine of the church. It's the same idea as President Eyring saying that unanimity constitutes revelation. Well, the unanimity aspect of it is thrown into doubt somewhat by what we now know from Hugh B. Brown is the apostolic charge that it is the duty of an apostle to vote with the majority. So this unanimity seems to be more appearance than reality. It is the appearance of being unanimous that is more important than actually standing by your own opinions if you are an apostle. The idea that apostles see Jesus comes also from different aspects in church doctrine. For instance, the second comforter. Joseph Smith taught about the second comforter that that was to actually see Jesus. This is in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 150, where he is interpreting passages from John 14, which say, quote, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Ye see me because I live. Ye shall live also. He that loveth me shall be loved of my father and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So that's from John chapter 14. Here's what Joseph Smith said about it. The second comforter, quote, it is no more nor less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is the sum and substance of the whole matter that when any man obtains this last comforter, he will have the personage of Jesus Christ to attend him or appear unto him from time to time, and even he will manifest the Father unto him, and they will take up their abode with him, and the visions of the heavens will be open unto him, and the Lord will teach him face to face. So there's this idea of the second comforter that Joseph Smith taught, which is available to members of the church if they qualify for it, by a lifetime of dedicated service. In the public mind, who else would qualify for the second comforter more by a lifetime of dedicated service than those who are the apostles of Jesus Christ in this day and age? Now, I remember growing up in the church and listening to general conference and listening to the talks by the apostles specifically and waiting with bated breath until the end when they bore their testimony. Because I was already convinced in my mind that they had seen Jesus, I would listen for the language that they used. And the closer they came to implying that they had seen Jesus, the more excited I became and the more convinced I became that they had actually seen Jesus, in spite of the fact that in none of their testimonies do they actually say that they have seen Jesus. It seems that, in many instances, apostles seek to couch their testimony in language that is meant to convey the impression that they have seen Jesus without actually coming out and saying it. They seem to be trying to keep the myth alive. Now, one of two things is going on here, to be balanced and fair about this. Either the apostles have have seen Jesus and they don't want to say they've seen Jesus or they haven't seen Jesus and they want to give the impression that they have seen Jesus without coming out and actually saying it. It is to the point where when I talk with some members of the church and bring up the fact that they don't say that they've seen Jesus, the response I frequently hear is, well, just because they don't say they've seen Jesus doesn't mean they haven't. So without some independent evidence that apostles have seen Jesus, why is it that Mormons today overwhelmingly believe that they have? Let's go on with our data points from history. One of the main things I found in my research, which tends to show why it is that Mormons today believe that LDS leaders have seen Jesus, is a manual called Teachings of the Living Prophets Student Manual. It's available on the LDS.org website. Chapter 5, The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, there is a special section devoted to the apostles being special witnesses of Jesus Christ. And in it, this manual collects the most suggestive statements made by apostles over the years, implying strongly that they have seen 
teaching Jesus without actually coming out and saying it. This manual is dated 2010. It is currently taught in the church, and this probably has a lot to do with why it is that members today believe that apostles have seen Jesus. Not only hearing from this manual or being taught from this manual, but hearing and being taught ideas that are collected in this manual. It is part of the subtext of Mormonism. Going to this manual, current manual in the church, Teachings of the Living Prophets Student Manual. This is the manual which says, quote, Apostles know for certain by personal revelation that Jesus is the Christ and that he lives as a resurrected being. Remember, these manuals don't come out of thin air. They are created by committees and they have to be approved by leadership of the church, including at least one apostle. So the apostles are authorizing these things to be taught about them with the full understanding that members of the church will believe them. Again, back to the manual. Apostles know for certain by personal revelation that Jesus is the Christ and that he lives as a resurrected being. President Joseph F. Smith explained the sacred nature of their calling. This is from conference in 1916. President Joseph F. Smith said, quote, These twelve disciples of Christ are supposed to be eye and ear witnesses of the divine mission of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. He doesn't say that they are eye and ear witnesses of the divine mission of Jesus Christ, but they are supposed to be. And this sounds like a person who, when he was called into the twelve apostles, which would have been decades before 1916, would have received an apostolic charge similar to that given by Oliver Cowdery in 1835. Apostles are supposed to be eye and ear witnesses of the divine mission of Jesus Christ. It is not permissible, this is President Joseph F. Smith going on, it is not permissible for them to say, I believe, simply, I have accepted it simply because I believe it. Read the revelation. The Lord informs us that they must know, they must get the knowledge for themselves. It must be with them as though they had seen with their eyes and heard with their ears and they know the truth. Notice the language. It must be with them as though they had seen with their eyes and heard with their ears and they know the truth. That is their mission to testify of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead and clothed now with almighty power at the right hand of God the Savior of the world. So even though Joseph F. Smith uses somewhat squishy language in describing what it is that the apostles are supposed to bear witness of, he does say they are supposed to be eye and ear witnesses of the divine mission of Jesus Christ. And if they are supposed to be, what are his listeners supposed to conclude other than that they probably are? Jumping ahead in time to 1971, Boyd K. Packer gave a famous talk in General Conference a year after he was called to be an apostle, which deals with this subject. Apparently, after he'd been called as an apostle, a number of unspecified people had come up to him and asked if he had seen Jesus. And Boyd K. Packer got so wrapped around the axle about this that he decided to give an entire talk in General Conference to address this question. And in this talk, his goal seems to be to dress down people who would ask such a question while still giving the strong impression to his listeners in the church that actually, yes, he has seen Jesus and so have the other apostles. Here's the language that he uses. Quote, Occasionally, during the past year, I have been asked a question. Usually, it comes as a curious, almost an idle question about the qualifications to stand as a witness for Christ. Now, first off, let me break in and say, if a lot of people are coming up to Boyd K. Packer and asking him if he he has seen Jesus, that demonstrates right there that there is a widespread belief among members in the church that the apostles have seen Jesus and that Boyd K. Packer, having been called, may or must have had this experience as well. Boyd K. Packer continues, the question they ask is, have you seen him? That is a question that I have never asked of another. I have not asked that question of my brethren in the quorum, thinking that it would be so sacred and so personal that one would have to have some special inspiration, indeed, some authorization, even to 
ask it. So he wants to really dress down the people who are coming up to him and other apostles and asking this question and keep them from asking it because he thinks it would take special inspiration or authorization just to ask the question. Now think about this. Boyd K. Packer is already trying to imply that he has seen Jesus because if he hasn't seen Jesus, why would there need to be any special authorization to ask someone who hasn't seen Jesus if they've seen Jesus? The answer is just no. If someone came up to me and asked me if I'd seen Jesus, I would just say no. I wouldn't say you have to have some special authorization to ask me that question. Why would you have to have some special authorization if I haven't seen Jesus? So already Boy K. Packer is strongly implying that yes, the answer is I have seen Jesus, but you shouldn't be asking that because you don't even have the special authorization and inspiration necessary just to ask it. Boyd K. Packer goes on and says, there are some things just too sacred to discuss. Now, how many times have we heard that in the church? We're going to talk a little bit more about that meme later. There are some things just too sacred to discuss because as it turns out, it seems that apostles not only are given an apostolic charge, but they're also given special key words to say whenever anybody asks if they have seen Jesus. And part of that is there are some things just too sacred to discuss. That is what they are supposed to say regardless of whether they have seen Jesus with apparently the idea in mind that it gives the impression that they've seen Jesus without actually making them tell a lie. Boyd K. Packer continues, there are those who hear testimonies born in the church. And by the way, this is all in that manual from 2010. This is currently being taught in the church today. Boyd K. Packer, there are those who hear testimonies born in the church by those in high station and by members in the wards and branches, all using the same words. I know that God lives. I know that Jesus is the Christ and come to question why cannot it be said in plainer words? Why aren't they more explicit and more descriptive? Cannot the apostles say more? Well, of course they could say more. All they could just say is, I've seen Jesus, and that would be pretty plain and pretty clear. The fact is, they don't say that. Rather, they say words that they intend to give the impression that they've seen Jesus without actually saying, I've seen Jesus. Boy K. Packer goes on, How like the sacred experience in the temple becomes our personal testimony? See, he's going back to this, it's too sacred to talk about. The temple's too sacred to talk about. So are our special witnesses as apostles. It is sacred, and when we are wont to put it into words, we say, it in the same way. In other words, the same way that members say it. The apostles declare it in the same phrases with a little primary or Sunday school youngster. I know that God lives and I know that Jesus is the Christ. I said there was a question that could not be taken lightly nor answered at all without the promptings of the Spirit. So this is the question, have you seen him? It cannot be taken lightly and he cannot answer it without the prompting of the Spirit. I have not asked that question of others, but I have heard them answer it, but not when they were asked. So he's talking about other apostles that he has heard answer this question, have they seen Jesus, but not when they were asked. They have answered it under the prompting of the Spirit on sacred occasions when the Spirit beareth record. I have heard one of my brethren declare, I know from experiences too sacred to relate that Jesus is the Christ. So here Boyd K. Packer is quoting suggestive language from another apostle which he has heard, which he is using in order to try and get across the message that yes, apostles have seen Jesus, but without coming out and saying it directly. Again, he says, I have heard one of my brethren declare, I know from experiences too sacred to relate that Jesus is the Christ. I have heard another testify, I know that God lives. I know that the Lord lives. And more than that, I know 
the Lord. So this talk from 1971 in which Boyd K. Packer dresses down people for asking apostles if they've seen Jesus, while at the same time trying to imply as strongly as he can that they have indeed seen Jesus, is being taught today in the church, in the current manuals. It is a little wonder then that members of the church today believe that apostles have seen Jesus in spite of the fact that they don't say that they've seen Jesus. The manual goes on and contains yet another very strong statement, an insinuation that apostles have seen Jesus. This one comes from Harold B. Lee, president of the LDS Church in the early 1970s. This is what he says. Some years ago, two missionaries came to me with what seemed to them to be a very difficult question. A young Methodist minister had laughed at them when they had said that apostles were necessary today in order for the true church to be upon the earth. They said that the minister said, do you realize that when the apostles met to choose one to fill the vacancy caused by the death of Judas, they said it had to be one who accompanied with them and had been a witness of all things pertaining to the mission and resurrection of the Lord. How can you say you have apostles if that be the measure of an apostle? And so these young men said to Harold B. Lee, what shall we answer? I said to them, go back and ask your minister friend two questions. First, how did the apostle Paul gain what was necessary to be called an apostle? He didn't know the Lord had no personal acquaintance, he hadn't accompanied the apostles, he had not been a witness of the ministry, nor the resurrection of the Lord, how did he gain his testimony sufficient to be an apostle? So, when that question is asked to anybody who knows anything about the New Testament, the answer is obvious, because Paul had a personal visitation and witness of the resurrected Savior on the road to Damascus. Harold B. Lee goes on, and the second question you ask him is, how does he know that all who are today apostles have not likewise received that witness. You could not get much stronger in your implication that modern apostles have seen Jesus than this story told by Harold B. Lee. He follows it up by saying this, I bear witness to you that those who hold the apostolic calling may and do know of the reality of the mission of the Lord Unquote. And that's found in the book Stand Ye in Holy Places, pages 64 to 65. So all these quotes from past leaders of the church, from President Joseph F. Smith, from Boyd K. Packer, from Harold B. Lee, these incredibly suggestive quotes that imply as strongly as they possibly could without actually coming out and saying it that they've seen Jesus are being taught in the church today. And yet, when church leaders speak publicly about their experiences with the Spirit, it seems a lot less dramatic. It seems a lot more like they simply experience the Holy Ghost and the impressions of the Spirit in the still small voice the way the members are supposed to. No special manifestations, no special visitations. For example, when Gordon B. Hinckley, now president of the church in 1997, was interviewed by ABC, the question was asked, as the world leader of the church, how are you in touch with God? Can you explain that for me? And Gordon B. Hinckley says, I pray. I pray to him. Night and morning, I speak with him. I think he hears my prayers as he hears the prayers of others. I think he answers them. So extremely undramatic language being used by Gordon B. Hinckley. The interviewer follows up. But more than that, because you're leader of the church, do you have a special connection? And the interviewer now leads President Hinckley into describing what it is that happens when revelation is received by the church. President Hinckley says, now we don't need a lot of continuing revelation. We have a great basic reservoir of revelation. But if a problem arises, as it does occasionally, a vexatious thing with which we have to deal, we go to the Lord in prayer. We discuss it as a first presidency and as a council of the twelve apostles. We pray about it and then comes the whisperings of a still, small voice. 
and we know the direction we should take, and we proceed accordingly. The interviewer says, and this is a revelation, and President Hinckley says, this is a revelation. So it seems from what President Hinckley says in this interview that the process of receiving revelation by the church leaders is something very undramatic, something very common, something that all members of the church are counseled to have and to seek after, which is the whisperings of the still small voice. So what we have in the LDS Church is actually two messages being taught at the same time. We have leaders that I've quoted, Gordon B. Hinckley, here also back in 1984, as well as Joseph Fielding Smith in the 1950s talking about a personal visitation is not as strong as a witness of the Holy Ghost, giving one message to members of the church that really they don't receive any kind of special visitation, they don't receive any kind of special witness of Jesus Christ. When they're bearing witness, they're simply bearing witness just the same as anybody else would in a ward fast and testimony meeting. And at one and the same time as this message is being taught, we also have the other message being taught, which is that actually they have seen Jesus, those strong implications. They have seen Jesus. That's what their special witness is. And so the way this is often resolved in the minds of members is that when the leaders of the church are saying publicly that really it's just the still small voice, that's a revelation, what they're doing is they're couching their language carefully because it's in a public setting. They don't want the public to know that they've actually seen Jesus, which the member already knows that they have. And so the member believes that they are giving this message in this way to the outside world when really they have seen Jesus. It's a fascinating psychological phenomenon that the member is going to actually support his or her belief that apostles have seen Jesus by denying the truthfulness of what it is that the apostles themselves say, at least publicly. And once again, we get back to the strange response, and I think it accounts for it in some measure, of members who say, well, just because they don't say they have seen him doesn't mean they haven't. This whole idea about leaders seeing Jesus is tied up not only in the special witness of the apostles, not only in the second comforter that Joseph Smith talked about, but also in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies in modern LDS temples, at least some of the temples, is a special room where only the president of the church can go, the prophet of God upon the earth in this day. And the idea is out there, and actually the teaching is out there, that the prophet goes to that special room because that is where he receives personal visitation and instruction from Jesus. Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith said this about the Holy of Holies, quote, No one can truly say he knows God until he has handled something. And this can only be done in the holiest of holies, unquote. What is Joseph Smith saying they have to handle before a person can say he truly knows God? Well, this is veiled language, but it seems pretty obvious that what he's talking about is handling the prints of the nails in the sides and feet and hands of Jesus. He doesn't come out and say it, but that's the veiled implication. That no one can truly say he knows God until he has handled something, and this can only be done in the holiest of holies. So as I say, Joseph Smith said that in 1842, and this may form some of the foundation of this idea, that these personal visitations occur in the Holy of Holies, personal visitations with the resurrected Savior. Now compare this with what Boyd K. Packer said in his book, The Holy temple, page 4, about the Holy of Holies. Quote, Hidden away in the central part of the temple is the Holy of Holies, where the president of the church may retire when burdened down with heavy decisions to seek an interview with him whose church it is. So once again, Boyd K. Packer using the same kind of veiled language as Joseph Smith, but implying strongly that the Holy of Holies is the place where the president of the church goes to seek an interview with Jesus, and the implication being to see him. And in addition to these statements that have been published, there are myths 
that circulate in the LDS Church about strange happenings in the Holy of Holies. I don't know that I'm the only one who has heard the story about back when Spencer Kimball was president of the church. And the story is that there are only two people with keys to the Holy of Holies. There's the president of the church and there's the janitor because the janitor has to go in and keep it tidy. The story goes about the janitor walking by the Holy of Holies one night when the temple is closed and hearing Spencer Kimball in the Holy of Holies talking to somebody and another voice answering back. There's another story about a president of the church coming out of the Holy of Holies and laughing and wiping tears out of his eyes and saying something about the Lord having a very good sense of humor. These are simply myths, as far as I can tell, that get circulated in order to support this common idea that the Holy of Holies is the place where the Lord does appear to his prophet. This plays into this whole idea that members of the church have, that the leaders of the church, and especially the prophet, but I think all the apostles, have seen Jesus, and that's what qualifies them to be an apostle. So the leaders of the church have been playing this both ways for about a century now. On the one hand, saying that they just receive revelation like everybody else receives it. But on the other hand, implying as strongly as they possibly can that really they have seen Jesus so people can have confidence in what they say as authoritative. I mean, if they're just the same as everybody else and only listening to the still small voice and trying to interpret it as best they can, that doesn't inspire the kind of confidence that they want the members of the church to have. But a few years ago, a person came on the Mormon scene who has thrown this issue into sharp contrast, who has brought it to a head, and that person is Denver Snuffer. Denver Snuffer has a neo-Orthodox movement within the LDS Church. He has gotten a lot of traction. There are a lot of people who are following him and agree with him. And the one thing that he has said that has excited more interest among members of the church perhaps than anything else is his simple statement that he claims that he has seen Jesus. I'm not here to stand in judgment on that as to whether he's seen Jesus or not, but I know that he says he has seen Jesus and that has created a great deal of attraction to him from members of the church. And I think that one reason for that is because more and more members of the church are getting wise to the fact that even though they believed that the apostles of the LDS Church have seen Jesus. They're not saying they have seen Jesus. And so members are starting to wonder, have they seen Jesus? Well, here's Denver Snuffer saying, I've seen Jesus. And so that creates the pull toward Denver Snuffer and away from the church. Denver Snuffer has become so popular among Mormons and drawing so many Mormons away from their allegiance to the leaders of the church that in June of 2015, Dallin H. Oaks went to Boise, Idaho to have a special presentation there, which has since come to be called the Boise Rescue. The reason Elder Oaks went out to Boise along with Richard Turley from the Church Historian's Office was to try and address the situation that's being created by the popularity of Denver Snuffer. Now, Denver Snuffer's name is never mentioned, but you don't have to know a lot about what's going on with Denver Snuffer to see that that's exactly what is being addressed by Elder Oaks. As part of the presentation, Elder Oaks addresses the question about whether apostles have seen Jesus. This is part of his presentation because Denver Snuffer has claimed to see Jesus. So Elder Oaks has to address this question. As I say, it is Denver Snuffer's claim to have seen Jesus that has thrown this issue to the forefront of the discussion. And here's what Elder Oaks says, quote, The first answer to this claim is that modern apostles are called to be witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. Doctrine and Covenants 107.23. Now, if you actually look at this revelation, that is what it says. It says, modern apostles are called to be witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. This hasn't stopped apostles 
before this from just using the abbreviation that they are special witnesses of Christ, but now Elder Oaks wants to focus on the name of Christ, that they are special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world, and that is what the Revelation says, in all the world. This is not to witness of a personal manifestation, okay? So here, Elder Oaks is giving the first message, the message that what they receive is no more special or different than what members receive, and it doesn't mean just because they are called special witnesses of the name of Christ that they have received a special manifestation. Quote, this is not to witness of a personal manifestation. To witness of the name is to witness of the plan, the work, or mission, such as the atonement and the authority or priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which an apostle who holds the keys is uniquely responsible to do. So when Elder Oaks is saying that they have a special witness, they're not saying the witness is special. They're saying that the apostle is special, and therefore any witness he bears is special because it's the apostle giving it. He's not saying that the witness itself is special, that it comes from a manifestation. So the way he is interpreting this passage now is it's simply the apostle who is special, and any witness he gives is special. He's not giving a special witness about a special experience the apostle had. Now Elder Oaks goes on. After having given this first message about how their witness is just common and ordinary, doesn't have to be a special manifestation, he's going to want to have it the other way too and imply strongly that actually they have seen Jesus. He goes on, quote, While some early apostles and other members of the church have had the sublime spiritual experience of seeing the Savior, and some have made a public record of this, in the circumstances of today, we are counseled not to speak of our most sacred spiritual experiences. Why is he saying this? By the way, I'm breaking in in the middle of a sentence. Why is Elder Oak saying that? We are counseled not to speak of our most sacred spiritual experiences unless there are sacred spiritual experiences that he's had that he can't tell the people in Boise about. That is the implication. And that is the intended message that Elder Oaks has for his audience. He gives a reason for this. He says, In the circumstances of today, we are counseled not to speak of our most sacred spiritual experiences. Otherwise, with modern technology that can broadcast something all over the world, a remark made in a sacred and a private setting can be said abroad in violation of the Savior's commandment not to cast our pearls before swine. So really what he's saying is, I have seen Jesus, but I just can't say it out loud because otherwise I'd be casting my pearls before swine. But notice how strange this is. In the first quote from Elder Oaks, he correctly cites the Doctrine and Covenants which says that apostles are supposed to be special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. That's part of the revelation. Now he says he doesn't want to bear witness of Christ because he's worried that that witness might be shared in all the world. You would think that Elder Oaks would be happy to have his witness shared in all the world through technology because that would make it so that he could actually fulfill his scriptural apostolic charge. But instead, the possibility that any testimony he bears could be shared in all the world now comes to be for him the excuse for not sharing it. Of course, at the Boise Rescue, no questions were allowed to be asked and answered, so nobody could bring this up to Elder Oaks, and we'll have to guess what his answer would be. And here I want to bring in something very interesting from Tom Phillips. You may have heard his name. He was a former stake president and area authority in England. He received his second anointing in 2002, and subsequently he left the church, and he talked about the second anointing and what it consists of. The purpose of this program is not to go into the details of the second anointing, but to go into another aspect of it that Tom Phillips spoke about. The second 
anointing is an ordinance that occurs in the temple. It is supposed to be kept very sacred and very secret by those who receive it and not to be talked about. Tom Phillips talks about it because he's left the church. The second anointing is equated in Mormon doctrine with having one's calling and election made sure. Once you've received your second anointing in the temple, your calling and election is made sure and you cannot fall from that unless you deny the Holy Ghost. In other words, your exaltation is assured. This is also tied up in Mormon belief with the second comforter. And Tom Phillips had the full expectation that at his second anointing ordinance in the temple that he would see Jesus, that Jesus would appear to him, and that he would have that sublime experience. He went to the temple. He had a wonderful experience. He said it was very spiritual, but nowhere did Jesus show up. And so he thought, well, maybe this is something that happens later on in a private setting. But after two years, Jesus had not appeared to Tom Phillips. And Tom Phillips began to wonder, is the problem with me? Is it I, Lord? Am I the one who's at fault? Am I doing something wrong that's preventing me from having this expected experience of Jesus appearing to me? And Tom Phillips went to a general authority and asked this general authority that question. Is the problem with me? I haven't seen Jesus. I've received the second anointing. What's going on? Am I not doing something right? And according to Tom Phillips, the general authority told Tom Phillips that if anyone asks if they have seen Jesus, what they've been told to do is this. They have been told to look that person right in the eye and say, quote, we have been counseled by the prophet not to discuss such sacred experiences, unquote. Now, this is interesting because Tom Phillips is getting this advice from a general authority in the face of Tom Phillips having told the general authority that Tom Phillips hasn't seen Jesus. So the response is to say these words, this is a script, this is a meme that leaders in the church and or those who have received their second anointing are counseled to tell people when they're asked point blank, have you seen Jesus? The response is, we have been counseled by the prophet not to discuss such sacred experiences. It is a dodge. It is an intentional implication that the speaker has seen Jesus when in fact the speaker knows that that's not true. Tom Phillips mentioned this story in an interview on the Infants on Thrones podcast, February 20th of 2014. And it's very interesting that he gives the language that he was told to say, we have been counseled by the prophet not to discuss such sacred experiences. He gives this in an interview that is over a year before Dallin H. Oaks goes to Boise and says virtually the exact same language. So once again, Tom Phillips, February 20th, 2014, says this is what they're told to say. We have been counseled by the prophet not to discuss such sacred experiences, end quote. Elder Oaks, in June of 2015, when he goes to Boise, says, In the circumstances of today, we are counseled not to speak of our most sacred spiritual experiences. It's the same line. It's the same meme. It's the same implication. And because of this, we have every reason to believe that what Elder Oaks is saying is a complete dodge, and it's an intentional dodge to try and give members the idea that really he has seen Jesus when in fact he has not. And interestingly, in the interview with President Gordon B. Hinckley from 1997 that I read from earlier, he actually finally gets around to saying that meme. The questioner asks, how often have you received such revelations? And Gordon B. Hinckley says, Oh, I don't know. I feel satisfied that in some circumstances we've had such revelation. Then the light bulb goes on in his head. And he says, It's a very sacred thing that we don't like to talk about a lot. A very sacred thing. So it seems that Gordon B. Hinckley was caught flat-footed on this question because he wasn't asked point-blank, Have you seen Jesus? Instead, he was asked, 
about his connection with the Lord and what a revelation is like, in which he describes it as being very pedestrian, very still, small voice, very undramatic, and finally getting to the end of it, the end of that section of the interview, where the interviewer says, and this is a revelation, and Gordon B. Hinckley says, this is a revelation, and the interviewer asks, how often have you received such revelations? And President Hinckley says, oh, I don't know. I feel satisfied that in some circumstances we've had such revelation. Bing! It's a very sacred thing that we don't like to talk about a lot. A very sacred thing. Well, he's already talked about it a lot. And in a context that shows that there really isn't a lot to talk about. So I think that what was happening in that interview is that President Hinckley did not realize the implications of what it was he was saying and describing Revelation as very mundane and very prosaic until he got to the end and then realized that he needed to switch into the sacred language of it's a very sacred thing that we don't like to talk about a lot. A very sacred thing. Okay, now going to the most recent implication that apostles have seen Jesus. Nobody takes the prize away from Wendy Nelson, the wife of President Russell M. Nelson, who gave a talk in January of 2016 at Hawaii in a young adult devotional that was broadcast to all the world. In her last paragraph to her talk, Sister Wendy Nelson goes all in on trying to get across the idea that the leaders have seen Jesus. And here's what she says, quote, My dear brothers and sisters, whom I love, the reality is that someday you and I will each have an individual face-to-face interview with the Savior himself. When this eventuality becomes real to us, we will be willing to do whatever it takes to be prepared. So now a question as I conclude. Okay, so she's already set up her question, and she's talked about the reality of a future face-to-face interview with the Savior. Now her question. Here we go. Quote, What if you learned that the Savior had already returned to this earth, that he, as part of his second coming, had already met with some of his true followers in several marvelous large gatherings, gatherings about which the world, including CNN and the blogosphere, knew nothing. If you found out that the Savior was already on the earth, what would you desperately want to do today, and what would you be willing and ready to do tomorrow? So here, Sister Nelson goes all in on trying to imply that large gatherings of leaders of the church have already seen Jesus face to face and that it occurred in these large gatherings as part of the preparation for his second coming. And so these messages continue to be taught to the members of the church even as recently as January of 2016 by Sister Nelson. Under these circumstances, it is no wonder that members of the church are getting mixed messages on the issue and feel that even though the apostles are not saying point blank that they've seen Jesus, that they really have and that these experiences are simply too sacred to relate. By contrast, Joseph Smith did not seem to have too much of a problem in sharing his first vision experience in which he claimed to have seen not only Jesus Christ, but God the Father in the Sacred Grove. The 1842 account of that incident was written to be published in a newspaper, so I think that he was okay with making it public. And I would be willing to wager that no matter how sacred these experiences are that the apostles claim to have, which are too sacred to relate, that they are not more sacred than seeing Jesus Christ or God the Father. So Joseph Smith wanted the world to know about his first vision experience to the point where he was going to have it published in a newspaper. His goal was to make sure that people heard his testimony so they could judge whether it was true. But today, apostles take the other tack. They don't want to speak about their experiences publicly because they say they don't want the public to know. They don't want other people to find out that they have seen Jesus as the implication because then they would be casting pearls before 
swine. All I can say is that this is another instance where the modern Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is very different from the early Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and also different from the New Testament apostles who seemed to travel extensively and go everywhere they could and tell everyone they could find about their special witness of Jesus Christ. And so in conclusion, 30 years ago, I was convinced that all the apostles had seen Jesus Christ, and that when they bore their witness, they were telling me in veiled language that they had seen Jesus Christ. I would wait until the end of their talks to hear their testimony, and I would appreciate it so much when the apostles would use very strongly veiled language, indicating that they had seen Jesus. I ate that up. Today, I feel differently. I do not believe that they have seen Jesus. I think that the reason they don't say they have seen Jesus is because they haven't seen Jesus, and yet they want to keep the myth alive among members of the church that they have seen Jesus in order to fulfill what is commonly understood to be an apostle and have the witness of an apostle. And so today, I feel there is more than a little truth to the story about how when the apostles meet, each one of them sits around wondering if they are the only one who hasn't seen Jesus. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.